Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do list one week at a time. I'm your host, Sam, and with me are my co-hosts, Tessa. Hello. And Andy. Hello. This week, Tessa never knew that herring could be so entertaining. Andy goes Armageddon on the deep impact of his favorite werewolf movie. I spend four hours with the saddest band in the world, and this episode goes completely off the rails almost immediately. Two new, two mics. So Tessa, you- That's me. Yeah, that is you. (laughs) Thank you for being a friend. I watched the American sitcom Golden Girls because of Betty White's untimely death. And I, yeah, I know she was 99. It's still untimely. The internet will tell you it was untimely, and it was untimely. More on that later. But I decided, because everyone else was re-watching Golden Girls, that I would give it a watch for the first time. So I had Sam collect a best of episodes list, and I went forth. Especially because this week I also finished a first draft of my dissertation. I'm very proud of it. I almost said that that was my monkey for this week because I've been working on this dissertation for about three-ish years now. So yay me. But that also meant that I did not have a lot of brain space for anything too complicated. If you had done that too, I would have quit the podcast. That just would have been the end. (laughs) I would have refused to talk about that on the episode. Let me tell you about my dissertation. No, we're not doing that. No, we're not doing that. Uh, I don't want to do that. By the way, Andy... Okay, the cool kids call it a dessert, by the way. I just want to make sure that's clear. It's a dessert. That sounds like something people say on the playground to each other. A dessert. Are you disserting me? No, it's <laughs> it's it's uh it's what you answer when people ask you what you've been up to. You just say, just dessert. Uh, just oh, is dessert. that where the phrase just as desserts comes from? Just desserts? Yes, uh. exactly. It's it's uh it's us academics being like, us academics. well, we have to make something like, you mean, you mean real yeah, doctors, yeah. not the, not the barbers out there at the hospitals. I just want you all to know that I've had dissertation hell as my location on social media for the past year, which is, which is different from just the, the normal. It's different from the normal hell right, that everyone's it, been living in. It's, it's its own <laughs> like seg- segment. Like, I like the, you've been in dissertation is, hell. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Regular hell, people didn't want to be there. We just all ended up there through whatever you want to say, the chain of events is, the social forces, the rhetorical forces, the physical forces that have brought us to this particular hell. I signed up for dissertation hell. Like, I decided that I wanted to be in that part of hell. I don't know if that makes it worse or not, but it does make me a special kind of something. It also makes you a special kind of something because... You're the only millennial I know who hasn't seen Golden Girls before now. I know. Like, I had never seen it before. I just didn't grow up in a family that really watched a lot of sitcoms, especially sitcoms that were about women and sex, which Golden Girls is definitely very much about. So this was a sitcom that was created by Susan Harris. I was very surprised to find out it was created by a woman. It aired from 1985 to 1992, and I didn't know there were a lot of women writing television back then, so that was pretty awesome. There's about a total of 180 half-hour episodes. I'm just going to tell you right now, I did not watch 180 episodes. (laughs) We watched 15 episodes. Like I said, Sam put together a best-of list based on things that she knew about and things from the internet, and we just went on. I will say it's been really fun, though, talking to people who are re-watching it. Like, I got a real sense of community out of this, which I really needed this week because 
being in dissertation hell is a very lonely experience, as I'm sure that I know Sam knows that. I'm sure you're becoming aware of that, Andy, as you are starting to write your own. And of course, gold, the Golden Girls are B. Arthur as Dorothy, a practical, sarcastic substitute teacher who is sort of the straight man to the antics of the others. Rue McClanahan, who plays Blanche, a Southern belle who works at an art museum and owns the house that they all live in. She's wealthy, she's beautiful, and very slutty, kind of a mix of Streetcar and The South Shall Rise Again, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. So a mix of Streetcar and Streetcar. Yeah, Streetcar and Streetcar. Without, like, the sad part. Like, she's actually a pretty happy person, for the most part. What? The Blanche from Streetcar is not happy. (laughs) There's also, of course... Betty White, who plays Rose, a grief counselor from St. Olaf, Minnesota. She is the dummy of the show, which is a, there's a long tradition in sitcoms dating all the way back to the monkeys with Peter Tork of having one of the characters be the dummy. She is the dummy of the show. She's really known for completely missing the point of whatever's going on and telling long wandering stories about her very strange childhood in rural Minnesota. And of course, there's also Estelle Getty, who plays Sophia, Dorothy's mom, who moves in with them after her retirement home burns down. Before the show, in the timeline of the show, before the show starts, she had a stroke that causes her to lose her filter between what she thinks and what she says. So she just says whatever she thinks of. That's just an excuse. Yeah. And she's also like, what, 80 years old. So yeah, that that's definitely part I, of it. I think that plot detail is about as relevant I don't as think Blanche it matters. working at the, uh, it doesn't matter. the museum, which I don't think comes up a single time. I don't time. think that actually comes up at all. Well, she talks about art a lot. I think that's like the main her, thing. Her Ming vase. Yeah. I just want to mention that Estelle Getty was just about as old as the other actresses in this show. And so they had to do like make, give her makeup to make her look older so she looked believable to be Dorothy's mom, and her makeup took like three hours to put on. So that's pretty good for like a sitcom, sitcom lifestyle. Yeah, you know, based on her bona fides, she really should have played Mystique. Yeah. Estelle Getty is she, Mystique. She, Estelle Getty I'd is Mystique. Let's show. go. Let's go. Who would be Arthur be? Be Arthur? Magneto. Mag- yes. She would actually be okay, a good so Magneto. Blanche Gambit. Gambit. She's Kitty Pride, bruh. No, Blanche. Okay, okay. Yeah, I can no, see that. No, or Rogue. She, she could be Rogue or Gambit. She, well, I think she's about as thirsty as Gambit is. Yeah, so. yeah, I could see that. Yeah, that's what that what is. What about Rose? Uh, Dazzler. <laughs> <laughs> just Rose. It's just Rose. Betty White. She's just Rose and she's just Betty White. Betty White was definitely with a superpowers. Mutant. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I got a question here. Would this be called the X-Girls or would it be called... Men girls. X. Well, you already called you already, golden golden X. You already called golden B. Arthur's men? character the straight man. So, I mean, but that's a comedic. That's like that's like a comedy term. She's the straight man. But it's not that funny. Ah, whatever. This is what happens when we have two mics and we don't have to pass it in. Oh my god! Yeah. Get ready. Be careful ready, what you all. wish for. Anyway, I, yeah. the show, I realized my mistake. This was a big mistake, this was a mistake on your mistake, part. Andy, telling you us we needed to get two mics. criticism, and I fixed uh. it. So the show is about this group of women sharing a home in Miami. That is the premise, is that they all are roommates in this house. And they are made of gold. Sure. <laughs> Let's say. 
like the Japanese Buddha statue. <laughs> what? <laughs> what did you What did you like about this show? I liked this show because number 1, I was watching this show mainly for Betty White as I mentioned before. And I can really understand why people love this character for her. I understand that, that why this is the show that people most remember her for. Rose is charming. Like I said, she does play a pretty, uh, she plays a trope, right? The dummy is a trope of this kind of sitcom, but she's so charming that she pulls it off. It never feels like the joke is really at her expense. It's a very like, oh, honey moment. Almost every time something comes out of her mouth that, does it make sense? Or she's still stuck at the beginning of the conversation or she'll pull something out that like an observation that she'll pull out that no one else will say that kind of is at the expense of the other characters. She is just so delightful in this. And there's a bit that happens almost every episode that I really enjoy where they're all sitting at the kitchen table. And what they'll usually do is they'll trade off. The actresses will trade off having their characters say something like tell a story or like ad lib something. And you can tell that whenever this happens, that they're improving, especially when Betty White does it. And I think the goal every time they filmed these scenes was to try to break the other two actresses. And Betty White does it more consistently than either B. Arthur or Rue McClanahan. You can see in you know, a lot of the scenes where both of them have their heads turned away or they've buried like their head like their head in their hands, especially be Arthur, because she just and she doesn't break. Like she just has this wide-eyed, like innocent, like just saying the most ridiculing ridiculous sorry, saying the most ridiculous stories about herring that you've ever heard in your life. Like there is just something very special about her performance. B. Arthur is the perfect counterpoint. She just gives off this very, I'm just over all of these ridiculous people that I live with kind of vibe, but she still really loves them, which is why she stays. Estelle Getty as Sophia is also a wonderful character. She just is that grumpy old lady. There's She every once in a while will say something that makes it sound like either she or her husband or both of them were in the mob in New York. And it is like one of the funniest things like she's just she's great they they all just play off of each other so well i want to go back to rose for a second because we have spent the last week comparing rose's fun stories and mannerisms to your own tessa and and what most people probably don't know is that tessa's family or at least part of it is from a very similar neck of the woods and i have heard you go on stories about what about life up there and in the in the in the north and you in also mentioned north. yeah up there and you also mentioned that you thought that her constant minnesota stories were perhaps the genesis for another sitcom character yeah i actually had to look up when she said she was from st olaf minnesota and she keeps talking about st olaf like every single episode she'll mention some ridiculous thing that happened in her childhood in St. Olaf. She clearly grew up in one of those like more Germanic insular communities because that's the way she talks about her childhood. And I actually looked it up because I was like, is that where Marshall is from? From how I met your mother? He's from St. Cloud, Minnesota, not St. Olaf, Minnesota. But 
the more I think about it, the more I think that perhaps Jason Siegel borrowed some of the ways that he talks about his character's childhood and about Minnesota and about like the strange things that can happen when you're from like some of these very insular communities from Rose Nyland, played by Betty White. Tell us about the guest appearances that you saw in so, the episodes of the first and second season that you watched. Right. So Burt Reynolds is in one episode as himself. There's a whole episode about how they're trying to go see Burt Reynolds at a party, but they don't actually end up making it to the party. And why don't they make it to the party? What? And why don't they make it to the party? Oh, they don't make it to the party because Blanche gets them a hotel room, but doesn't realize that the hotel room is like a place where people, where where prostitutes hang out and pick (laughs) up people to take upstairs. And so they get mistaken for prostitutes by the police and put into jail. And so Sophia steals their ticket and goes to the party without them and then becomes friends with Burt Reynolds and he picks her up for lunch the next day. It's a very, very funny joke. Sophia's law is great. You were mean to me. So I'm going to take your ticket. (laughs) And I'm going to do what I'm going to do now. my favorite Sophia line so far is she tries to tell a story that's going to shed light on the situation and they tell her no. And so she tells a slightly shorter version of the story and they're like, wait, so what's the moral of the story? She's like, for an anecdote, you just get pure entertainment. That is one of my favorite Sophia lines of all time. Which which guest star did you not recognize at first because of the haircut? Because of the haircut and because this was before ER, I did not recognize George Clooney. But he is in an episode, a very, very young George Clooney with a mullet. <laughs> He's a cop in an episode. It's great. It's great. And the children... And the children. So because Dorothy is a substitute teacher, she often has children around the house or is tutoring or something like that. And Mario Lopez guest stars as a character named Mario, one of her favorite students. And it's actually a very special episode in all caps because we did those in the 80s and 90s about undocumented immigration. Surprisingly, it has aged well. When we went into it, I was like, oh, I don't know how this is going to go. It's actually a very touching story that is not patronizing or through the lens of whiteness. It's very interesting. Yeah, I know that Golden Girls is pretty famous for actually tackling a lot of social issues. Yeah, it has very much surprised me how, I mean, we're going to talk about how not everything's aged well in a minute, but like, it's actually aged surprisingly well for a sitcom that was made in the 80s, mostly. I mean... I I liked that episode. I thought he was great in it. Dorothy, who's the main person who's like interacting with him, is really great in it. You know, she talks a lot about the U.S. and how like immigration is actually something that's good for the U.S. and how he belongs there. Like, it's actually very touching. Let's talk about the things about this sitcom that didn't age very well. That like, oh, maybe if we got the chance to do it again, they'd be different. So I like Rue McClanahan. I think that Blanche can be a very funny character and I appreciated things about her character like the way that she's very open about her sexuality she's often teased for being like promiscuous but she is an older lady who likes to have sex and who has lots of dates and who is often very funny and very witty and I appreciate that the southern trope stuff doesn't really age well in an era where we know that a lot of that is code for a lot of racist and 
at no, just racist, just racist things. Like she will say things like she has a very exaggerated Southern accent. She's supposed to be a belle. She's very much based. She said that she, Rue McClanahan said that she based the character very much on like a gone with the wind streetcar type of vibe. But she, you know, just will say some things, you know, like she hasn't actually said the South shall rise again, but it's like dancing kind of around that sort of thing. Like, war of northern aggression and like her grandfather like her her family's very wealthy and her grandfather owned a plantation her dad shows up and she calls him big daddy all of this stuff like she's definitely performing white womanhood on the screen and at times it's very uncomfortable like you just know that her family owns slaves you know that she doesn't think well of black people she does occasionally say racist things, not about black people, but there was a joke in a previous episode about Jewish doctors that has not aged well. And of course, like Dorothy rolls her eyes at it, right? Like she's very like, oh, like she's like the racist sister or the racist aunt or the racist grandma. And maybe that was funny in the 80s to have a racist grandma or a racist aunt. But we know like now we're just like, no, those people are evil. Well, funny or not, they were there. Right. I mean, like (laughs) it's just it's just not funny. Like that just hasn't really aged well at all. And And I'm not saying that the character hasn't aged well because there are parts of her that work. It's just those specific performativity things don't work very well. And this show is set in Miami. We know that Rose is from Minnesota we, I mean, I, I would imagine the other two are from New York. Well, yeah, no, at least and Sophia so, is. Right. And yeah. so, you know, you've got, this is your Southern representative. And so they, you know, they choose to, because once you get out of the panhandle, if you're not from the South, you don't know this. Once you get out of the panhandle of Florida, you are not in the South anymore. Miami is not the South. So, so Blanche is very much in a different region. The point is they're all in a different region from where they came from. And so they're bringing that experience. You know, we get the jokes from Rose about growing up in Minnesota, and it's supposed to be the same for Blanche growing up in the South as it is for uh, Sophia growing up in the Sicilian mob. Right. And One like, of those is offensive now. Right. And I'm not trying to and say them. that there aren't communities in Minnesota that are racist or communities in New York that are racist, but... They're not coded in this weird white femininity in the way that her performance is. Like, there's a really uncomfortable scene where she's talking about how she witnessed someone steal a horse off of her grandfather's plantation and how she had to go to court to, like, like give testimony that she had seen it. And I'm just sitting there going, oh, God, please don't let there be a joke that makes it sound like someone got lynched at the end of this. Like, that is literally how I felt about that entire scene, even though she doesn't actually say that. She doesn't say that the person was black or whatever. But literally the way that she performed, it made me feel so uncomfortable, like, in that moment. So, yeah, those things haven't aged well. There are obviously, like, punchlines that are coming off of a broad stereotypical type of humor like there are in all sitcoms because as we know sitcoms they work off of broad character broad tropes broad humor and exaggerated characterizations and that doesn't always age well but I was actually surprised at how well this has aged I actually really enjoyed it even though there are some cringeworthy moments in every episode it's not as cringy as I thought it was gonna be if we were to reboot this now I'd like to see more diversity in the uh older ladies because obviously it's very white well and i think we would too don't you oh yeah no i mean 
that's the thing about the show is that it was really the first show to show older women having lives, right? Like usually older women in sitcoms are moms or grandmas and they don't have lives. They're just kind of there for the younger characters to be bounce off of. And we haven't had a lot of shows actually try to do this since then. Like people say that a lot, that this is the first, but I, is there another show that has tried to have this many women, old women in it? Like there is. And it also starred Betty White. Right, exactly. And so we had, yeah, uh, TV TV Land had hot in Cleveland for a few years, and that was Betty White is now the the uh, the, the Sophia character yeah. because she's the oldest one to Jane Leaves and Wendy Malick's uh, younger characters. I I wouldn't necessarily call Betty White the star of Boston Legal, but she was very good in Boston Legal as a murderer multiple times. She killed multiple people. Should people watch this show? Oh, yeah. People should watch this show. I just think it would be really interesting to see more of these types of shows with more diversity in the types of elderly women that we see. Like, I'd love to see a show about black elderly women. You know, like, that would be really interesting, I think. But, yeah, I 100%, especially if you are in dissertation hell or some other sort of hell that you elected to bring yourself into and you're very stressed out, this is actually a very good sitcom to relax with. I do not think you are the first, nor do I think you will be the last person to go through dissertation hell and use the Golden Girls as their escape. No, No. you're not the only one now. Andy, have you been watching (laughs) Golden Girls? No, I'm busy. Andy is watching the anime version of Golden Girls. (laughs) Yes, and, uh, and Golden Gorozu. Uh, exactly, and I make fun, but if Betty there was one, one you would have watched it. I'm not probably. Uh, That'd I, be I pretty will... funny. Everybody, everybody is a different actor except for Betty White, who still plays. It's the still same Betty character. White. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. You mentioned earlier that the specific reason that you watched the Golden Girls this week was all the talk about. I'm going to say Gilmore Girls before the segment's over at least once. <laughs> well, you just you did. watch the yeah, you're going to watch the Golden Girls because everyone was talking about it following Betty White's death. So that that kind of leads. So I thought that this would be a good opportunity, especially because, you know, two days before we recorded this, uh, another famous person, uh, Meatloaf, also died. And we get into this really weird thing where. These people we don't know, right? At all. Personally, at all. They have lives. We have nothing to do with those lives. But we mourn them almost as much, or in some cases more, than we would mourn people passing in our own family. Why do we do that? For me, the one out of the big deaths that hit me the most was Bob Saget. And Bob Saget has been in in a part of my life and my interactions with uh, my family, and with one of the things I love the most, comedy, for my entire life. Uh, it's a way both of marking the passage of our own time, but also of kind of mourning someone who actually was there. Uh, Bob Saget's voice is in my head constantly, the voice of How I Met Your Mother. And, you know, but he was also America's Funniest Home Videos, uh, Full House. And so many other things. Uh, it's I it's, cannot believe you mentioned Full House third in the <laughs> list of Pop Saget credits. You are definitely a millennial. Okay, so so here's 
here's here's kind of a, a thing. I, I I watched all of Full House multiple times because TBS aired it constantly, and then Nick at Night aired it constantly. For for me, uh, Bob Saget was a comedian. He was the right kind of edgelord comedian. He was able to be incredibly edgy and dirty. And in another life, when I was trying to do stand-up comedy and seeing how that would work, uh, it was a, a a big, big, gigantic influence on me. Also, Bob Saget, before we had the Chuck Norris joke, we had the Bob Saget jokes. If you would go to bobsagetisgod.com, there was an entire list of Bob Saget facts. This is before Chuck Norris. His aristocrats joke is great. Yes, his aristocrats joke is great, etc. Uh, but that that's the thing is we mourn these deaths because they are public because they have more of an attachment to us than we realize. Betty White has been in so many things constantly. I can name, you know, community. I can name a lot of others. I'm sure if I sat down and thought about it because she was everywhere, everywhere. And it was always like Betty White. Hey, here's a fact. She popped up in a podcast ad two days ago for me. She was reading um, for Smokey the Bear. She was working till her very last day. She's everywhere. Her voice is the voice of an old lady in my head. You know, whenever I think of an old lady character, I imagine Betty White. I think that the thing is, is that when people put art out into the world, it often connects with people. And that is what we think of them as. Like, we don't know who Betty White was. I, I mean, I never personally met her. I don't know what she was like as a person, but I do know a lot of her work has connected with so many people. It's connected with me personally, even though I had never seen Golden Girls before. And I think that's what they mourn. They mourn that attachment to someone who was able to reach them and able to touch them in that way. For me, one of the big deaths of this year was uh, Mike Nesmith, which we talked about, although I think it was harder for Sam than it was for me because it was very unexpected, but also like his his role in music, not through just through the monkeys, but also country rock and the music video and all of those types of things has been just absolutely enormous. And I think back to 2016 when Terry Pratchett died and the way I had to actually, I was working at a call center when I found out and I actually had to go off the call for about five minutes to like collect myself because it was just such a huge impact. I never met Terry Pratchett. No, like I do not have a friendship with someone. I don't want to use the word, word parasocial because it's become so toxic. But the idea was that he had written so many things that were so formative that it was hard to lose it was not only hard to lose the person who had given so much to me, what sometimes felt like was just for me personally, even though I know it was for a lot of people, but it was also hard to lose the potential, I think, for more, for being able to see them do more, to create more art. Even someone like Betty White, who was very old. I mean, she was just shy of her 100th birthday. Like you said, she was still creating art. And so the idea of losing that potential, I think, is also very difficult. Yeah, and this is also why, like, for me, two of the celebrity deaths that have hit me the hardest were uh, Chadwick Boseman and Anton Yelkin. Anton Yelkin was very unexpected. Yeah. Very unexpected, and is he was, he's was he been in so many of the things that I love, and uh, it bites a big, fat one. Yeah, and, you know, uh, Tessa mentioned Mike Nesmith. We were going to see... Him and Mickey Dolenz. We didn't 
because they had to reschedule their show because, and this is true, Savannah banned gatherings because of COVID. And so they rescheduled the show for April of this year. Of course, according to Ticketmaster, they're still going to be there. So this is like a Ferris Bueller situation with Ticketmaster. It's, It's bad. To make you feel a little bit better, maybe. Uh, it would probably be delayed again this year anyway. I mean, hey, it hey, hey, folks, you're putting on a show in the next couple of months. You ought to postpone that. And if not, be decent people. Give people refunds. Yeah, I mean, I just I think it's hard. And I would be interested to know because, like I said, I, I use this as a time to rediscover Betty White through some of her work that I hadn't seen, some of her best work that I hadn't seen. I'd be interested to know what you all do when someone that you are familiar with that you feel this way about what you do when they die, do you immediately revisit their work? Do you stay away from their work? Like what's your, what is, what is your emotional reaction through interacting with their art? Well, you know that I woke up, uh, you were asleep, but I woke up uh, not long after the news had broken in the middle of the night about meatloaf immediately just started listening. I listened to like some various songs then I listened to bed out of hell all the way through. A a, a few of us had a discussion about him on Twitter for a good part of the day. That was, that was one where I felt the need to immediately go back. I remember when Heath Ledger died, which was the first one that really affected me because he's four months older than I am. And so that's, that's another one too when somebody close to age dies and you start to realize, well, that can happen. I remember thinking, I still, I would love to see all of his movies and I still haven't. There's a few I haven't, but I definitely watched a few then that I hadn't seen at that point yet and probably definitely watched 10 things again. The thing for me is I am usually drawn to their last work. That is usually the thing that I make sure that I see, whether it's a movie that's coming out later uh, I still haven't seen Thoroughbreds, which is Anton Yelkin's last work. I really want to. When Bill Paxton died, I went to go see The Circle. Yeah, that th- that's usually it for me. I don't have a I don't have a desire to relive things if I've seen them recently. That being said, I might go back and watch a few of Betty White's old uh, Community episodes because, oh my God, as the anthropology teacher in Community. She was hilarious. I mean, her timing is always spot on. Like, she has some of the best comedic timing of anybody that I have ever seen on television. So, yeah. Okay, Sam. So this weekend, you watched The Cure Trilogy. And I know that Disintegration by The Cure is one of your favorite albums. So you've heard this music before, but you've never seen this. Is that correct? That is correct. Do you want to explain what this is since I like just made this a hand is, motion? <laughs> yes. What Tessa is referring to is a DVD that I have had sitting on my shelf since I bought it immediately after its release in 2013. Well, I could have known that when you said it was a DVD. <laughs> <laughs> it has been put out on Blu-ray, allegedly. So the Cure Trilogy is a performance from Berlin in 2002. Shot over two nights, so it's a composite. Most shows are at this point, live shows that are recorded. It is a performance of three albums that Robert Smith uh, considers to be a trilogy. 1982's Pornography, Disintegration from 
And then finally, the most recent album that they had released at that point, 2000's Blood Flowers. I think it's really interesting that he considers these a trilogy. Kind of one of those things, figure out why. Because they're not chronologically a trilogy. Like no. These are not albums that were released sequentially. No. Hmm. So do you want me to ask you, why do you think it's a trilogy then? Come on, Sam. Why do you think it was a trilogy? Is it because it's three? Is three of anything a trilogy? She's she's thinking. Yeah, because no. you know, we're are we a trilogy? Are we a trilogy on this podcast? We're a trilogy. I like that. <laughs> Hold on, I gotta think about that for a second. Does that make you Rise of Skywalker, Andy? <laughs> I was gonna say I, I'm more divisive. <laughs> I believe I'm the last Jedi. <laughs> well, neither one of us are the Rise of Skywalker. Uh, so no, we're not a trilogy. Wait, hold on. We Is are. Is that the only definition of trilogy? Yes. Yeah, apparently it's no Star other, Wars. Are there no right. other trilogies that we could be compared okay, to? Okay, first of all, for somebody who grew <laughs> up in the 80s, no, there's no other such thing as but a trilogy other than the Star Wars trilogy. you're referring to the trilogy of that series. I, they, made, they made a trilogy of trilogies, Tessa. Oh, my oh, God. Oh, no, no, no. That That's perfect. I am the prequel. No, wait. Sam is the prequel trilogy because Gen X. no. I'm the oldest one. Come on. I'm the original trilogy. Right. The oldest one. The one that came first chronologically. Anakin Skywalker was there. So your episodes one, two, and three. All right. I Us. I am Solo, the very underrated and much overlooked. <laughs> I think, I actually think that Tessa is probably the prequel trilogy. And, and here's why. Because. Careful. You have been on so many podcasts recently that all I can think of is, now this is podcasting. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something about my green screen. Nope. Nope. Green? That okay. was what I had for you. It was a podcasting okay. joke. Okay. All right. A little Look. podcasting Wait. humor. Oh, my God. I, I, I don't know why. We're the Back to the Future trilogy. Sam is the original. And then the other, we, me and Tessa came out six months apart. That's yeah, fair. yeah, that's perfect. That's fair. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Um, oh, 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 and Tessa saw a lot of Westerns because of her dad, so she's Back to the Future 3. Done, done, and done. That makes sense. And I make a so lot of mistakes. This... I'm Back to the Future 2. <laughs> <laughs> so why is Pornography, Disintegration, and Blood Flowers a trilogy? Never let Andy have a sports almanac. <laughs> uh, I mean, that was that was the task of watching this. That was kind of my assignment to myself is... Because I kind of had a loose idea of what it was, but I I wanted to see if it bore out, you know, because this is a live performance. I could have just listened to the three albums back to back to back. But where's the fun in that? I ask you. Exactly. Seriously, where's the fun in listening to those three albums at the same time? You're likely to have a nervous breakdown as anything else. Instead, so, we listened to four hours of music yesterday. Tell me about. Pornography. I'm going to tell you about pornography, Tessa. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is a safe for work podcast, guys. <laughs> Interestingly enough, we had an entire conversation during our watch of pornography about what pornography is. So so we, I think, I think the easiest definition is that pornography, if something is pornographic, it is commodified, fetishized version of something. Like for not consumption. a- yeah, for consumption, like not a real version. So I prefer pornography. So this album then is 
pornographic in that it is the fetishization of relationships for or a an ideal relationship for consumption and and the thing about it is is that when you do that when you imagine a relationship and you romanticize it if we know anything from watching 500 days of summer it's that we don't just fetishize the good parts we it's all of it and so the the album pornography is especially obsessed with the end because once you start thinking about a relationship as a whole you're going to get it's the whole thing about do you want to know when you're going to die or not it's the same thing do you want to know when this relationship's going to end because if you think that you're going to do it yourself next week mm. and so uh in songs on this album he's obsessed with in the song Siamese Twins he says is it always like this many times uh the album starts with probably my favorite cure song of all time 100 years the first line is it doesn't matter if we all die so and i mean he's like describing parts about you know let me love you meet my mother but eventually it's all going to fall apart so i think that's what the first album is about it's about the future in not okay. a good way. So how does that transition into Disintegration? So Disintegration is, of course, the best Cure album, if not the best album of all time. Trey Parker and Matt Stone make it very clear in season one of South Park. This is true when Mecca Robert Smith defeats Mecca Barbara Streisand. That is a South Park deep cut for everybody. Well, also, that's when you decided that you really identified with the character of Peyton when yes. her biological mom says, Wish is a great album. And she's like, yeah, it's a great album, but I don't remember where I was when I first heard it. I remember everything about the day when I first heard Disintegration. I mean, I can tell you, I know, I'm not going to, but I can tell you about the first time that I heard Disintegration, uh, the first time I ever heard Plain Song, which starts off with those really soft wind chimes and if you don't know any better, which you don't the first time you listen to it, you've turned it up really loud. It's a trick that gets played on you at the beginning because it's really soft. And so you turn it up and then you just get hit with a giant wall of sound. And pretty much for 70 minutes, he doesn't let up. But I can tell you the first time I heard that, I can tell you where I was the first time I ever heard Even Flow by Pearl Jam. It's those two songs. So if pornography is about the commodification and fetish fetishization of a relationship how how does that how does disintegration talk about relationships plain song which is the first song on the album has a line sometimes you make me feel like i'm living at the edge of the world which sounds great until you realize what happens at the edge of the world you fall off right or if you're a cat you knock things off um you've heard you know that old joke right yes of course i know that of joke. course the you know that joke really flat, the cat is that a terry pratchett joke it, it feels like a terry pratchett joke that's not a terry pratchett joke. but it could have been but he did write about a flat earth so there you pets. are so you're like halfway there right this album has a lot of singles on it some of which you might have heard i will always love you or no it's love song love song it is called love song i will always love you is the lyric i love that song this is also the song that peyton writes in its entirety on the river court. And what did you think about that as a big move? That a is big romantic That gesture? is a big move. Of course, it's wasted on somebody who doesn't actually like the cure. Doesn't he actually say, <laughs> Friday? okay, well, Friday I'm in love is actually all right. Oh. <laughs> the most basic cure I think song. Lucas is a cop. 
<laughs> anyway, you love anyway, disintegration. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, so like, uh, yeah, but there's a lot of stuff on there. Of course, if if for all you arachnophiles, uh, Lullaby is a great song. But eventually, much like the album's title, it the story of this album disintegrates. The song Disintegration is probably the best song on the album. He says, both of us knew how the end always is. And it's very depressing. And then the very next song is Homesick, where he says, I'm homesick for you. This is the disintegration of a relationship. If pornography is future tense, this is present tense. Which means... Blood flowers is past tense? Yeah. One of the very first lines in the very first song on the album, Blood Flowers, is, will we really remember how it feels to be this alive? And and so there's a lot of adjudication, going back through, revisiting. There's a line, the world is neither fair nor unfair, just nor unjust. I said to you while we were watching this one, this is somebody who's looking back on a relationship, but does that mean that the relationship is over or is it still happening? Because that's that's the real tragedy, right? Is that disintegration is the story of a relationship disintegrating, but it doesn't actually end. Yeah, which happens, I think, to a lot of a lot. relationships yeah. where you stay too long because it's what you're used to or that's what's comfortable, even though the relationship has already run its course. I know I've definitely been right. in a relationship like that. Who, who whomst among us <laughs> hasn't done that? <laughs> I mean, see, I don't see want, my old stand-up I, I mean, from 2012. Listen, I I understand. I understand. I just want to say that none of you are as good as committing to a bit as I am. Oh, we'll just leave that where we are, though. <laughs> I have listened to Blood Flowers actually several times in the last few months because uh, the next to last track on the album, 39, has a repeated motif that comes on over and over again which is I used to feed the fire, but the fire's almost out. And it's, you know, talking about when you love something and when you put so much into that thing that you love and it never gives you anything back, that fire will eventually die. And Tessa and I are fine. I'm talking about my job people. (laughs) Well, I also really liked... That in love song, it's I will always love you. But then in the last song of Blood Flowers, the end, or I think it's just end. Yeah. He says, please stop loving me. Like that's, over that's and over wish. and over again. That was on Wish. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. I was thinking of a different album. Yeah. Because sorry, because the other, that. because the third One Tree Hill reference is when Peyton's birth mother talks about how Wish is the best album. She's like, no. And when we saw that episode, I was like, no. So after we watched this, I put on Wish so that Tessa would understand why the answer is no. So I don't think you understand, Andy. Yesterday was a, I felt like at the end of the day yesterday that I had been tricked into listening to five hours of The Cure. That is basically mm. what happened yesterday. I really uh, enjoyed it. To be fair, it, I tricked I you into tricked. listening to one hour. The first four were willing. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh Damn it! Uh, never mind. I, I can't. I can't make that joke work. I. It really sucks when you can't turn it into a joke. Okay, um, so you've heard these albums before. Yes, several times. What did you think of the performance element of these set of live shows? We just talked about the fire. So this was a very bare bones show in terms of production. There were God when the show started because you know I've been having 
uh, headaches lately and I'm very photophobic right now, which is a really weird experience, by the way. I, I don't recommend it, but it's odd. I for didn't, any of I, you wanting to sign up for migraines. I did not. Do not yeah, recommend. don't do that. I didn't know that I was going to be able to watch this. I mean, the, the first song was very strobe heavy, which is appropriate given the song. But you get to 39 and there's like most of the songs, there's just something projected on the background with some minimal lights. There's a big fire. You know, there's like flames throwing throughout the song. And, and I think you said something along the lines of, well, are they going to go out? And as the song goes on, it fades and fades and fades eventually to black. And it was like, hey, look what they did. Of course, during Lullaby, there's a giant spider crawling around and Robert Smith. I was just fixated on Robert Smith's overlined red lipstick. How old was he when he did this performance? So he is 20 years older than I am. Okay. I mean, he looked pretty good for an old goth. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, his drummer, I don't know the drummer. I don't know anything about this band, really, but... The drummer looked like a freaking German model. So the so the things to say about the actual production, it's great, is the easy thing to say here. But The Cure has not had a ton of consistency in terms of band personnel. This is not, as I really truly found out yesterday, this is not a Nine Inch Nails where Trent Reznor is Nine Inch Nails, but Nine Inch Nails is occasionally a band with other people when he needs them, but he doesn't really need them. This is not that. There have been a a large number of people in this band. Most of the people, there are five people at the time of this performance. Robert Smith is the cure. He is the, the person who made the band. The band won't survive without him. Three of the people playing have been there either off and on with long gaps in the middle or relatively new to the band, except for the bass player, Simon Gallup, who was there except for like two period of less than two years, very early on before pornography. And so, or right after pornography, sorry. It's really, it was amazing watching him play the bass because I did not realize because he plays, I want to call them the, 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 the two lower strings on the bass, but those are actually the, higher strings. So he picks the bass. He doesn't pluck it. He picks it and he uses all four strings. He'll play the bass line and then he'll play an actual guitar part on the bottom two strings. And a lot of things that I assumed were Robert Smith are actually Simon Gallup. A lot of the most recognizable music not voice, but music from that band are Simon Gallup playing on a bass guitar. It's impressive. I I learned a lot just by watching him. Unlike, unlike other people who play lead guitar, who play so quickly you can't possibly learn anything by watching them, I do feel like I learned a lot yesterday from watching his, his bass work. It was impressive. I thought it was really interesting that Robert Smith, after he would conclude, after they would conclude each album, would tell you like how long it was between albums because they don't talk very much during the show, which is fine. I no, would rather them just all. play through the whole show, the whole album, since that's the point of the show. But after, like for an example, they finished pornography, he was like, "See you in seven years," and you know they went off stage to get a drink or whatever, and then came back on to play Disintegration. 
To reline his lipstick. Reline his lipstick, you know, touch up some of that, the, the, the black uh, That eyeliner. eyeliner does not need to be touched up. No, it that, is like is tattooed on Is that permanently on him now? Probably. Like, does he just have that Probably. smudged? At some point it became cheaper. <laughs> just to have it tattooed <laughs> on his face. Yeah, and then after Disintegration, he was like, see you in 11 years. I thought that was interesting too, especially yeah. since the albums didn't come out sequentially. I had never listened to a full Cure album. I had heard many of their songs before, off and on. This made me want to listen to them more, hearing the album performed all together. I just like that the only full album you've heard from The Cure is Wish now. Because <laughs> you heard live versions of the others. I will leave. <laughs> As somebody who uh, who worked retail, I will tell you that The Cure song, Monday I'm in Love, I think that's the name of the song. Friday I'm in Love. Friday I'm in Love. Okay, wh- Which is on Wish. Which is on Wish. Which is on yeah. Wish. Right, right. Uh, was was a pop weirdly prevalent on uh, on Sears mostly modern pop music. It's Muzak's the most playlist. playable of their songs, I yeah. think. But on uh, a radio, I I only know them from ska covers from uh, Goldfinger and Real Big Fish. Do you want to talk about covers, Sam? Because I the I think the only thing to say is that you're probably. Yeah, most of the things that were covered were probably the early stuff, like Boys Don't Cry. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it wouldn't make a lot of sense to transition a lot of the later stuff to well, a different genre. But, you know, the early cure is very punk Yeah, sensibility, yeah. which is easily translatable to something like ska. Yeah, exactly. So do you recommend that people watch the Cure colon trilogy? Or do you only recommend that Cure fans watch the cure colon trilogy. i mean if if you haven't heard disintegration I, i'm sorry <laughs> uh you should do that absolutely so you would say that disintegration and is just like heaven i would say that i would i would very much say that i think if you're not familiar with the cure you should listen to disintegration i think if you're somebody who likes The Cure and you haven't seen this yet, it is well worth it. I guess you'd be getting it on Blu-ray at this point. But as I said, I think it's well worth it. I think that oh, it was great. I really enjoyed it. And if you're a Cure fan, you would too. Awesome. Awesome. I'm I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Would you say that this uh, album was a panacea for your mood? Ah. Was it a cure for the pass? Andy. Yes, yes, yes. That is me. I am Andy. I I see. Okay, okay. All right. Because I don't know what this is, all right? So we're talking about something called the howling, and this is a really, this is a this or that situation. This is an, in, uh, this is an indie horror movie or a video game. Am I correct? Wait, are, wait, are you serious that you don't know what the howling is? Yes. Oh. Uh- Oh, oh! I I really would have thought you would have seen it already. Uh, it is neither. It is uh, surprise twist. Twist. Right. It is a Joe Dante film from 1981. Ah, Joe Dante. What did Joe Dante direct? The Howling. What else did he direct? Inner Space. That is a good. That I. Mm. Martin Short, spectacular. He also directed Small Soldiers and Gremlins and Gremlins 2, The New Batch. 
and Piranha. <laughs> oh yeah, he the, did the prequel, <laughs> the prequel to the movie that we talked about. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm actually like very shocked that you don't even know what this movie is. This was, this, uh, this is his werewolf movie. Well, I, came out the I would have years. guessed that. Right, that came out the uh, same year as the uh, as the John Landis classic, uh, American Werewolf in London, which I have also not seen. We, we, what? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh wow. I think I think Sam needs to watch a hundred percent more werewolf movies. Yes, I I could also stand to watch. I was a teenage werewolf, which I believe I've either gotten the title of the movie wrong. It's either a different werewolf movie. Or I'm right, I guess. But Michael Landon, Little House, I, I Way to Heaven. Michael Landon is yes. I was a teenage werewolf. I believe I'm correct on that one. There's a lot of werewolf movies out there. Yeah, and you need to see more of them. Wow. Yeah. 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 Especially like I would consider an American Werewolf in London to be like one of the top fifty movies of all time. And and yet I haven't seen that. But I've seen the Benicio del Toro movie. Oh. Can't win them all, people. Wow, you can't win them all. So, so okay. There be werewolves. They're wolves. Werewolves. They're wolves. Werewolves. In this movie, Pure werewolves, not swearwolves. There you go. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, sorry. I'm. I'm just like still getting over like that. This is a 1980s horror-ish classic. Horror-ish. Yeah, he yeah. Says. Yeah, this is this is one me. of the the I top this episode pro candy. If 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 you go if you go to uh topwerewolfmovies.com this is one of <laughs> we the We will top... get a 404 not found. Probably you, you know what? <laughs> I'm I'm going to find out topwerewolfmovies.com this site can't be reached Um, okay fine because it was eaten by a werewolf (laughs) okay werewolves yes werewolves um so so uh, anyway uh back 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 on track uh yes this is like one of the uh this is the deep impact to um john landis's armageddon uh, in terms of werewolf <laughs> movies that came out in the same year. Okay, that joke I get. Okay. Well done, sir. Well done. This was an attempt to do werewolves with uh, new technology and to make the uh, and, and to to be scary and um, and interesting and new. Is yeah. it scarier than an American Werewolf in London? Because the scene where he transforms in that hotel room still gives me nightmares. Oh, okay, okay. Um, you, you, you know what? We're we're going to go ahead and and discuss what I think is like the one of the reasons people watch werewolf movies is the transformation scene, and an American werewolf. Usually, people are cowards about it. They don't want to actually show what it'd be like for a human body to transform into a wolf. Right, right, and and that's and that's one of the things that uh, American werewolf. Uh, unfortunately for the howling does completely correct and completely terrifying and the howling tries to to capture this um but where american werewolf is terrifying and also clearly in pain 
Like, 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 it, like you said, that that one that hotel sequence is one of the most terrifying sequences. Uh, I will say, American Werewolf in London is a Sarah-approved horror movie. It is not that scary. It is very, very well controlled. I guess would be it. It, it doesn't uh, do a lot of scares. The the only other one I can think of that comes close to the visceral horror of that scene, like you said, it's not a scary movie. But that scene does have a lot of visceral like horror to it. The only thing that I can think of that comes close to it in terms of werewolf narratives is Hemlock Grove, which also has a very similar mm-hmm. werewolf transformation. You get to see body parts contort into a very, very painful wolf skeleton to canine skeleton type of thing. Well, uh, this this brings up the point. Uh have you seen Being Human? I have not. Okay. Um, it's been on it's... my list for a long time. Maybe that'll be a monkey this year. Okay. So during the uh, the first wolf transformation of Being Human, they actually do a, a bit of a, a narrative about uh, the different things that happen to the body and how the lungs change shape so you can't even scream or take in enough air as your bones are readjusting themselves and actually breaking to regrow and how it's like this, the most painful thing that happens. And that that's one of the reasons why werewolves try to be alone, because if they're anywhere near people, they will be discovered because they're the, uh, it's, it's such a, a horrifying act. Um, yeah, there's a Terry Pratchett wrote a character who's a werewolf and Gua who she always makes her boyfriend, who knows she's a werewolf, but he always, she always makes him close his eyes whenever she transforms. She does it fairly quickly, so it's not like a huge long process, but she's like, I would rather him not see me transform in case he just doesn't want to ever see me again after seeing that happen. So, so an American Werewolf does that right. This movie, unfortunately, does not. Uh, and, and I will say, it tries. It, it does some very, very cool things, but it just isn't up to the level of American Werewolf, which... Uh, okay, <laughs> hold on. Yes. I, I can't believe I didn't bring this up before earlier. I'm sorry if you're yelling at me, people listening to this, I'm sorry. So I just, I want to give you a scale here so you can properly rate it, right? So if Amer- American Werewolf does this correctly, so that's one end of the scale. Mm-hmm. The other end of the scale is the seminal 1980s werewolf movie starring everybody's favorite fox, Michael J., Teen Wolf, where he's on the basketball court and just wolfs out mid-game, and it's fine. Nothing <laughs> happens except he gets a little hairier. Yeah. So so that's like the other end of the scale, right? Mm-hmm. Where does... The howling fit. Okay, and just the the transformation and the terror of the transformation. Honestly, it's about a seven point five. Like Joe Dante is doing a lot of uh, a lot of work with um, prosthetics and the pulsating prosthetics that you will see later in the Gremlins. Uh, yeah, it, it looks it looks very good. But again, the problem is just like, Oh, the much better version came out the same year. The, what I still think is the perfect version. Um, so it also doesn't help that the actual design of the werewolves post transformation 
basically makes them look like fennec fox, like a cross between a mogwai and a fennec fox at human sized. This is a very unique take on werewolves that have very big ears and just overall pretty not that scary features. Um, any anyway, the the plot of this movie, which I should have brought anyway. Uh, I was I was gonna let you talk yourself out and then you know, <laughs> say hit me with the plot. Go yep. ahead. Yep. So so I'm gonna hit you with the plot. Uh, news reporter lady who um, is top new not top New York news reporter lady is investigating a serial killer and she has a moment with the serial killer which gives her PTSD and her doctor doctor sends her to a uh, a place to live up up north called the colony and not uh, ominous at all oh oh exactly exactly and yeah that's the people of the colony might not be what they seem and that serial killer who uh, she had a run in with might not be what he seemed either. And uh, yeah, that I mean, that that's it. The, the plot is paper thin. Uh, an American werewolf in London, I think, has a beautiful plot. This is just you can see the beginnings of Joe Dante wanting to do a horror comedy. You can see the the beats that are funny. But also this is gaslighting a woman, the movie, which is a little a little weird. Isn't that just the Invisible Man? Wait, isn't that Fox? just Gaslight? <laughs> isn't that just the movie Gaslight? It's, yeah, it's Murder She um, Gaslit, starring Angela <laughs> Lansbury. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I'm done. No, 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 it, it's fine. I, I really wish I'm I had more done. to say about this movie. I, I thought like, oh, you know what? I want to see The Howling, which, you know, in a very 80s move, spawned like six sequels. By the way, because you know, but the howling 80s. too, the howling. Well, flying, flying, the howling to flying werewolves, which gave Ridley Scott the start to his career. Uh, I can't tell if you're joking. I'm though. not. I I am very much joking. the The point is Joe Dante's refusal to do a sequel to Piranha is what gave us James Cameron. Right. Um, if he had oh. just said yes. I really don't know what would have happened. Okay, can I uh can, can I actually tell you what uh, the sequel to The Howling is called? You have The Howling. The Howling 2, colon, your sister is a werewolf. Howling 3. That is so They went hard was, with the sequel title. Man, you I mean like you usually don't until the third movie have to come up with stupid after the colon titles. Right. But it gets better because the third one is called Howling 3. Then we have Howling 4, the original nightmare. Howling 5, Rebirth. Howling 6, The Freaks. The Howling, colon, New Moon Rising. The Howling, Reborn. Like, like I said, I really wish that there was something to say about this movie. Um, you know, I think Ginger Snaps is a better a werewolf movie. You know, you're the second person that movie keeps coming up. Ginger Another Snaps. movie I didn't know that existed. Yeah, oh, I've oh, wow. Oh yeah, Ginger Snaps is great, and it's so strongly uh, female-led, which is kind of the whole point of it. it. It's almost like a female The Lost Boys. Oh, I like that. You you know that that's my jam. Yeah, Big. yeah. Um, it, so, and it, it's funny because Ginger Snaps redhead with uh, werewolf, so she snaps. Uh, anyway, like she chomps I down was on things. Say, would this movie have been better had there been gremlins? In uh, on, honestly, 
the number of werewolves versus gremlins. Uh, yes, but also honestly, the number of werewolves once they finally come out is a rivals the number of gremlins. So we would have like a one to one gremlin werewolf showdown, and you know what? I think Spike could beat them. Also, I I have an idea for another sequel. We throw this in, or another spinoff, right? We throw this in the Burbs, right? Who else is there? Tom Hanks, Bruce Dern. I was thinking it was Money Pit. It's the Burbs. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Then, then we have everything go off when you realize that the Burbs is right next to a volcano named Dante's Peak. Joe Dante's Peak. Please stop. Please stop. This this podcast has gotten officially off the rails. Oh, oh, American Werewolf in London is is like a uh everyone should watch it. Like like it is it is of that caliber of film. It is out- outstanding. And this is just like, oh, this this what would have been a fine werewolf flick, but it wouldn't have any impact. And it also had the unfortunate timing to come out the same year as American Werewolf in London. So suffers by comparison. Ooh, it suffers hard. All right, guys. So we got a whole day planned out for you. Wake up in the morning. Feeling like people. Pour your pour your cereal, make your breakfast, watch Golden Girls, have yourself your a bowl, nice little mini cereal. Golden Girls marathon through lunch. After lunch, get ready to cry, listening to disintegration. After that, you'll probably need a nap, frankly. When you wake up, sun's gone down. It's time to experience not the howling, but American Werewolf in London. So That's we've done right. it for you. That is your monkey off my backlog day off. That is a full range of emotions. You feel all the feelings that it day. It is. It'd be great. All right. I. Who knows what? Actually, I know what we're going to do next week. Tune in next week. Back by popular demand. It's Tessa. Yay! It's another romance episode. The Twitter, the Twitter people have spoken. <laughs> the Twitter people have spoken. I will be joined by Elise of the Podwraiths podcast and Melissa of the Wild Pretty Things podcast to talk about romance back by popular demand. We'll be back in two weeks to talk about other things. In the meantime, Andy, where can we find you online? You can find me online on Twitter at... Andy noted. Tessa, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Swayla Tessa. Swayla is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, at Nanny's Book Club. You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today. What pop culture you've crossed off your list lately what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Monkey Backlog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Visit our website at monkeyoffmybacklog.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. iTunes and Spotify. Follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back.